I'm Rebecca Rothstein, and along with my co-host, Leanne Daly, we'd like to welcome you to Say It Forward. Each week, we'll be doing one of my favorite things to do, and that's interviewing interesting people with out-of-the-ordinary life stories. They're all people who took a different path in life. Some never imagined the heights they would achieve, and others, well, they turned their childhood dreams into reality. Sitting in with Leanne and I today is one of our executive producers, Kim Garner. So let's begin. Cindy Whitehead became a professional skateboarder at barely 17. She's an entrepreneur, a top sports stylist, a boundary-busting author, and an advocate for girl skaters on a global scale. Cindy is the first female member of the Skateboarding Hall of Fame. Her legacy in this sport is distinguished by her bold imagination and sheer guts. Her truth is captured by her many favorite lines. Live life balls to the wall, do epic shit, and take every dare that comes your way. Recently, she made the front page of the L.A. Times when she slipped past the police and skateboarded solo down L.A.'s 405 freeway during Carmageddon. Her international girl skating initiative, Girl is Not a Four-Letter Word, continues her message that girls deserve a chance to skate at the top levels of this sport. The good news for us is that she's here to tell us all about her early days, showing the boys a thing or two about how to ride vert. Don't know what vert is? Well, let's find out when we rewind to the beginning with skateboard champ Cindy Whitehead. I just want to start when you were a little girl and hear a little bit about how skating happened for you and the passion around that. I think growing up at the beach and being surrounded by boys most of my life, I was kind of a fearless girl. I was building forts. I was climbing trees. I was climbing through tunnels that we found near the beach. But I was always doing things like that. And when I picked up a skateboard for the first time when I was eight years old in my driveway, it was a black night board with clay wheels that did not <laughs> roll over anything. <laughs> I loved it. But being young, I had a lot of different passions that I wanted to explore. So I didn't come back to skateboarding until I was about 14 and a half years old. And I got one of the new skateboards with the Bane, sorry, it was a Bane skateboard with Cadillac wheels, which was urethane. They rolled over just about anything. And I had asked for it for my birthday and I got it and I was so excited and it was blue. And I just remember my brother skateboarded and I did a lot of things with my brother and I competed a lot with my brother and he was four years older and he was better at everything than I was. But I quickly learned that with skateboarding, he wasn't that good. He thought he was. (laughs) He wasn't that good. (laughs) And so I think in the beginning that fueled me a little bit, but I think also being used as a mode of transportation at that age. Oh, yeah. It better than, yeah, yeah, better than a bike even. Everybody had a bike, you know, but a skateboard, you can just throw it in the corner, you know, you can pick it up and run with it when you need to. It's just an easy mode of transportation to get around the beach to visit your friends. So yeah. you're one of the few native Californians. I feel like it, but my mom is um, actually third generation LA. Wow. So wow. yeah, my mom went to Hollywood High and uh, then I grew up at the beach my whole life. That's wow. amazing. I feel, very, I feel very lucky. We should put up a plaque in her honor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where? There's only 12 people that were actually born here. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Did your mom make you wear a, a, a helmet when you were skateboarding at that age, or is that something that's relatively new in the world today? Yeah. No, we, we didn't wear helmets. I think, you know, growing up during the 70s, we were not a time of helmets and uh all these things that we have in place now for kids, we were a little bit freer. And I think in a lot of ways, that was a good thing. We just didn't have those rules in place by society. And there weren't really skateboard helmets until a little bit later when the skate parks developed. And even then, we had to be forced to wear them. We didn't want to wear them. Right. Because yeah. I remember when I was 10, I remember my father telling me, you couldn't do anything a boy can do. I had that message in my household, too, that I was no different than any boy, especially my brother. And that came from my grandmother mainly, which was interesting because you'd think it comes directly from your mom or your dad. But my dad was really about like little girls being girls. His sisters were debutantes. His Mm. family came from you know, a wealthy background in Los Feliz and things were done a certain way. You grow up and you become pretty and you get married and and a nice guy takes care of you. Well, you fit the pretty blonde mold for sure. <laughs> well, well, thank you. <laughs> but then you. you turned out to be a tomboy, right? <laughs> yeah, I turned out to be a total tomboy. I used to get no bribed, for you. bribed by my grandfather on my dad's side to wear dresses 
it was always asked why I showed up at their home not wearing dresses and wearing jeans. And my grandmother was the one who was a bit of a rebel like me. And I was always telling me, you know, you're, you're equal to all these boys and you do what you want. You dress how you want. And my grandmother was the one when my mom would dress me and put me in a dress for school. And I hated it. As soon as she left for work because she was a teacher, my grandmother would let me change back into the jeans and go to school. So (laughs) we had a very, what an influence. Yeah. We had a very special relationship and all through my years as a skateboarder, she was the one, you know, helping me sneak out of school to go to demos and she was basically the bad guy for my mom. But it was great for me because I was already excelling in school and there were so many things I wanted to do. Was she your mom's mom? She was. She was my mom's mom. And we actually, my grandparents and my mom and my brother and I all lived together for quite some time in Hermosa Beach in a very large house. And they took care of us or my grandmother did because my grandfather was at work but my mom worked long hours and she was also getting her master's degree so my grandmother looked after my brother and I my brother was a bit older and didn't need much looking after but when I was younger she was in the home with me for a few years so she was a very big influence Wow and what an interesting picture that is too it's you a young maybe 16 or 17 year old girl with your grandma in a skate park where you're probably one of the only girls going down into the sort of features and skating around in them. Like, what was that environment like? Well, my grandmother wasn't at the skate park that much. Parents didn't go to the skate park back then. They dropped you off, you know, and you went and did your thing. And later Mm -hmm. on, you called somebody to pick you up. Come on home for dinner. Yeah. (laughs) You'd leave. Yeah, exactly. You called somebody to pick you up and shop all your friends home. You, The parents didn't hang out. Now it's very much like the parents are there all the time. And I hear about it. It's almost like soccer in a way. It's like, oh, this kid did this and that. And there's a lot of policing at the skate park by monitors and by parents. And every time I get a call like that, my comment is, hey, I grew up in this environment. Here's the best way to deal with that. Let the kids sort it out. They will figure out the hierarchy. They will figure out what's right and wrong. Mm -hmm. And they will police each other to a certain extent. And I feel that that's important. Mm -hmm. That's how we learn Mm -hmm. society's rules and what's acceptable and what we can also push boundaries on, too. Right. Um, I would think, yeah, you would have much more risk back then than kids would today when parents are, be careful, don't do this, or they're watching, all of that, where we were a little bit more... I wouldn't say reckless, but we didn't have those boundaries on us because it really was, okay, just be back for you know dinner. And they didn't really know what we were doing. Exactly. And you also had to learn and be careful what you said to people. Now you have social media. You can say anything you want and there's really not a lot of repercussions. But back then we knew that if we said something about somebody, it was a face-to-face and there might be consequences for that. So you really thought about that. Mm-hmm. I was very outspoken. So there were, <laughs> what does that there, mean? Well, you know, if I didn't like that some guy dropped in on me, I would drop in on him in the in the bowl and I wouldn't leave. And I had a very kind of well-known in the circle altercation with a very well-known Z-boy from the Dogtown era. And, you know, Jay Adams and I became very good friends and right. there was no problem there. And we laughed about it years later until he passed away. But he dropped in on me once. And I remember thinking, are you kidding me? I am like writing right now. I don't care who you are. Mm-hmm. And so I just kept writing and he kept trying to get me out of the bowl. And when I wouldn't, I finally stopped and threw my skateboard down and just glared at him. And then he stopped and glared at me and everybody sucked in their breath because, you know, it's a hardcore area of Venice and Marina Skate Park. That was, was a tough crowd, but I grew up skating there and so did he. And he actually had a lot of respect for that. Respect breeds respect. I want to know, is dropped in a skateboard expression? When you drop into a pool or a half pipe, it's literally you dropping in. So you'll either roll in or your tail drop in. You're sort of standing at the top of the rim. Yes. And then you go into that hole. Or or you put the tail of your board on the coping or the, or the ledge and you push down on the front of the board and it drops you in oh my goodness, to the ball. Oh my goodness, that's so scary. <laughs> Yeah. Back in my day, there was a lot of mouth drop-ins. Like there was a a section where you can roll in and drop in because tail drops weren't as prevalent then. But now tail drops, I mean, a five-year-old girl can do a tail drop. That's one of the first things she learns. So one of my friends has a son who's, uh, I think, 18 or 19 now, who's a relatively well-known skateboarder. He has had more broken bones and more surgeries and more incidents 
by a huge margin than it would seem as a mother would have been acceptable to me. Did you have that experience where you hurt yourself and had broken bones and you must have had scrapes and things like that? I, I did. I definitely did. I broke my tailbone. That was the first time ooh, I remember ooh. I had to go to school and bring that donut to sit on. And I thought, oh, that's ridiculous. I'm not going to be seen with that. So I just sucked it up, sat on a hard chair at school and tried not to wince and it didn't get well too quickly with that method. Oh, but that I, must have hurt so much. Oh, it was bad. I jumped over like a chain link barrier at the beach in between houses and my board went under and I jumped over, but I missed and I caught my toe and fell <sighs> backwards on my tailbone. So that was the first time. And then I broke my elbow three times. It got to the point where I just would drive myself to the hospital from the skate park in my car and then call my mom or they'd call my mom. And I had a stick shift. So I learned to drive with my knee and then try to stick shift with my left hand because it was always my right. So that was a little chaotic because nobody wants to leave the skate park to take you to the hospital. If you're not dying, people are not going to leave the skate park and take you to the hospital. So you got to figure it out. And then wow. when I'd have my arm set in a cast, I would discuss with my orthopedist who thought I was hysterical, the angle of which I wanted it set so that I could still skate and do my grabs. And I would leave the portion of the cast open <laughs> here so that my hand wasn't covered so I could still grab the board. And he would tell my mom, you know, she falls wow. straight down on her wrist. She'll now snap her wrist because of where that cast is. And I'm like, ah, that's not going to happen. So, yeah, you, you figure it out. Make it work. But that was a competitor in you, too. You wanted to continue to be able to do what you were doing because you were one of the first female professionals, right? Yeah, I loved doing what I was doing. And what I was just thinking about your friend's son is it's ingrained in him. Skateboarding is something that is probably like no other sport except maybe surfing that I could compare That's to. That's what I would say he does. He's a and surfer. snowboarding. It's ingrained in you. It's like once you're doing it, and, and skateboarding more so than surfing and snowboarding because those are becoming a little bit more mainstream. I hate to say that, but they are. They're becoming more mainstream. You go to the slopes, you see tons of snowboarders. Well, there's Very, also Olympic sports now that are dedicated to snowboarding. Exactly. I don't know about surfing, but I know there's Olympic snowboarding. Yeah, this um, 2020 surfing and skateboarding will be in the Olympics. We'll each have an event, and it's only for that Olympics. Every Olympics after that, whatever the host city is, which we hope will be Los Angeles in 2024, the host city gets to decide if those sports are included. So we're not like grandfathered in forever. We're on a case-by-case basis. Until another sport gets purged, we can't be permanent. So our way of qualifying is a little bit different than normal Olympics. We don't qualify by country. We qualify by continent. So it's it's complicated. Oh my We're learning this system and it's every day of field questions and I write articles about it because still it's only been a year since we've had this brought to us and we're still learning like how is this going to work? Where yeah. are the qualifiers? Where are the training camps? How so, is this going to so be? So you're very involved in that process. Very much yeah. so. I think that the Olympics is hopefully going to be the great equalizer for women's skateboard. What I'd like to see is what happens after the Olympics. Right now, I'm seeing a lot of changes. This morning, I was writing a piece about a girl named Lacey Baker, who was on Vogue.com this morning because she signed with Nike SB yesterday. That was a big, big deal. Lacey speaks out. She's a girl who is neither gay nor straight nor transgender. She refuses to be defined. And I think that's pretty powerful. She has said that the industry will never sponsor her because she doesn't conform and she doesn't look like they think girls should look. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing that a year later after speaking out so powerful, she has a huge deal with Nike SB. And I think that's pretty cool. Do you think it's getting any easier for the younger girls? Do you see it shifting for teens, tweens? I see more girls getting into skateboarding because I think that parents are understanding that it's acceptable. And when we see more mainstream companies, advertisers, and editorials about girls skateboarding, it influences a family, mother and father, to say, oh, okay, girls are doing this. Oh, I guess that's okay. And I think girls are interested because there are boards out there now that are geared more towards girls that have cooler designs on them, and they don't have a naked woman on the bottom of them or a pot leaf. So... There's something out there for them. So I think it's encouraging more and more of them to start. But are we getting any further than we were 35 years ago as far as money for the girls, as far as contests and sponsorships? 
Not really. I mean, I've seen a few things here and there in the last six months that I've been very excited about. But in a whole, I have not seen a lot of growth for women skateboarding financially in 35 years. And that is crazy to me. Does skateboarding require coaching somebody to teach you? Or is this something that you self-teach yourself? And what are the parameters under which you compete? So skateboarding does not require coaching. Usually go out with your friends and people you meet and you learn from them or you learn from nowadays they watch YouTube, but we used to learn from skateboard magazines too. go, oh, wow, and study those pictures. And there'd be a sequence shot. and That'd be really great because you could study every sequence of that move. And that's how most people learn to skateboard and do tricks and evolve. There are things called skateboard coaches now out there, and I know that people with younger girls especially will hire coaches to teach them. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing. If it helps you learn, that's great. But it's not really how skateboarding has been or has evolved. And I think those are changes that we're seeing, good or bad. Okay, so contests, you kind of work your way up from amateur level. They have amateur contests, and they charge to be an amateur contest. And then you'll win prizes, a trophy, and maybe a bag of goodies from sponsors. So they'll charge you. If you want to compete, you have to pay an entry fee. Right. When you're an amateur, you're paying an entry fee into those contests. And there's probably a contest every weekend somewhere on the amateur level, but now there's a little bit more availability for girls to compete. They used to have to compete more with the boys. Now there are girls divisions. Now, when you get to the pro level, a lot of those are invite only contests and there still are entry fees for a lot of those contests, but usually have sponsors by then and they hopefully pay, but not all the girls, you know, I can name girls that are in the top 10 whose sponsors don't pay for those entry fees and they pay for themselves. How do you determine if you are a competitive skateboarder? What is the determination to say that you won that event that you're participating in? How how do they measure that? It depends on the contest. There's things like amplitude, how, how high you get on the trick. There's degree of difficulty. There's style points. It depends on the contest. And sometimes going to a contest, you don't even really know what they're judging on. You kind of figure it out because three people went before you and you're like, huh, she didn't do that hard of a run, but she had really good style. I guess they're judging, you know, more on style for this contest. So we don't have that I see really concrete criteria in place at this point in time that will have to change moving towards the Olympics. We'll have to have some sort of degree of difficulty. Like that trick was more difficult than this one, but that was below the coping. So like that skating. Was, yeah, yeah. It will have to be like, Similar to that, yeah. Right. We won't have to register our runs like ice skating does, though. You know how they have to register like what their whole the thing, roadmap, the roadmap. Yeah, of what they have gonna to. Do. We're going to do three you, triples. Exactly. And yeah, two, and yeah. if they don't, if they mess up that triple or they put something else in there, like, oh, mark down. Ours is more free flowing. You can do whatever you want when you go out there. Some contests work on you get four runs, and if you fall, your run is over. Now, other contests, you get forty five seconds and three runs. And you get to use that whole 45 seconds. So even if you fall, you get back up and you start again and you keep going till the 45 seconds. So every contest is different. And that's why it's hard to prepare and to really know what you're going to be judged on. So the fact that somebody won this contest doesn't necessarily mean they're better than the person who got second at this contest. Is there any um, encouragement that you see from the other two sports, like women's snowboarding and women's surfers? Just the women in general, are they getting more attention from sponsors? Are they like a little farther ahead or kind of across the board? Everybody's in the same boat. I think they're farther ahead. And I think for snowboarding, having met with Donna Burton Carpenter, owns Burton Snowboards with Mm -hmm. her husband, Jake, I would say that she's been a huge influence in that because of the women's division they've had at Burton Snowboards. That's a huge company. It's one of the top in the snowboarding industry. So when you have a woman who's at the top saying, we're making boards for women. We are putting Shannon Dunn on our team. We are doing a pro model for her. It speaks volumes to girls and where the sport's going. It also speaks volumes to sponsors. Like, we're not playing that game of inequality. So you look at girls like Chloe Kim coming up in snowboarding, and she's phenomenal, and she's getting a lot of attention, a lot of endorsement deals. And in surfing, the girls have fought really hard, and they have banded together and said, we're not going to surf the, the slop or the you know crappy heats anymore. We're fighting for good waves. 
And they've been very successful in that to some extent. Now, they still do complain, and I agree with them, that a lot of the sponsorship deals they're getting are based on how much skin they're showing. And that girls who aren't as high on the contest scale level will get better endorsement deals just because they show more skin. You're talking bikini skin, yeah, right? Yeah, but mm-hmm. even more so than that, like if a girl wears a normal coverage bikini, which is still small, she might get less consideration than a girl who wears a Brazilian bikini. There's just all these things or like, you know, surf for magazines for many years, they'd run a picture of a a top rated girl in the top five, but she'd be doing like a backside off a wave and you'd see mainly her butt. And that it was like, come on, you guys, you know, she could do a front side off the lip and it would be so cool. And you'd see her face and you'd see everything and it would be so wonderful. But they were going for, you know, gratuitous sex again because they felt like that's what sold to their market. So the girls were being used in that manner. Is there a company or a brand in skating that you feel could stand up that way? I mean, I know what you're doing is amazing with your... You have your own. Yeah, with Thank your own. You. Yeah, well, I think there are some companies coming up, and I think what we're seeing in skateboarding is it's more like almost like a DIY situation. There are women who are starting smaller skateboard companies and doing their own brands and boards and sponsoring skaters. I'm lucky in the fact that I'm with one of the largest male-dominated companies in skateboarding called Dwindle, and I have a line with them. So I have a licensing deal and I have a line within the sport. Now I do cruisers and longboards, so I don't get into what they call popsicle sticks, which are boards for competing. But it's hard to pinpoint anyone in skateboarding that would be like the Burton Industries, Mm. with the exception of Vans, because Vans, Steve Van Doren, who runs Vans, his daughter, Christy Van Doren, helps run the company with him. So there you have a female who's the vice president and not the top who can help make those decisions and she does she she fights fearlessly for girls skateboarding with the vans competitions that they put on and she's doing a really good job trying to move us forward but that's like one company and that's a shoe company i can't pinpoint anybody that has a big board that has a male female at the top who'd really be like a jake and donna carpenter is there money in the sport there definitely is money in the sport if if you're male. It's changing for women, but there's definitely money in the sport. I just was writing a piece about this the other day about how a lot of the guys in skateboarding are millionaires, multimillionaires, some of them. They can build skate parks in their backyard. They live in houses that are six times the price of the house they grew up in. And some of them grew up wealthy, not, you know, middle class, wealthy. And they're living larger than that. They're driving $100,000 cars. Some of them have three and four, they collect them. They're trying to be like mini Jay Leno's. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I love seeing it because they deserve it. They work really hard, but these girls work just as hard. So when is it their turn? Because I see, you know, a girl three years ago who was in the top five living in her van. I see a girl now on Kickstarter and GoFundMe trying to raise money to get an airline ticket to the X Games qualifiers. That's a qualifier. That's not even a contest yet. It's just a qualifier in Boise, Idaho. When I see those things happening, and these are the girls that are in the top 10, I say to myself, what's gone wrong here? Because if I name every guy in the top 10 in male skateboarding, they're doing just fine. Those endorsement deals are what propel them. And the contests also rake in quite a bit of money. I mean, the difference is in Australia, there was just a contest and our team writer, Poppy Star Olson, got first. She won 500 Australian dollars. The guy won 5,000. So is skateboarding one of the last bastions of has to catch up to what they're paying the guys? I think so. I think there's probably a few other sports too, but I, I think skateboarding is definitely one of them. I think maybe for us, what needs to happen for women is companies like Dove or somebody on the outside coming in and sponsoring these contests and bringing more money to it because what's happening is all the money is going to the men's events and the companies are saying, okay, well, if we gave equal prize money or something near that to the women's, we'd have to cut back on the men's. And there's so many guys are like, oh, no way. That's, we're not having that. It's not like, oh, we give this to the guys and we're going to round up some more money for the girls. It's going to be taken away from what's already in the pot. And there's a lot of people who don't want that. Do you think this will change now because it's going to be for the first time an Olympic sport? And the second question is, are men and women going to compete in the Olympics? 
men and women will compete in the Olympics because the Olympics demand that. They are an equal opportunity place. And so women have to be included in every sport that's now brought in. Men and women have to be equal. So that is a good thing. As far as it changing leading up, I thought it would change a lot more. I'm seeing small changes. People are very smart, like Nike SB signing Lacey. She hopefully will go to the Olympics. She's one of the top street skaters out there. You'll probably be able to wear your own shoes at the Olympics. It'll be like track and field where you have to wear a singlet by the company who sponsors that event, but you could wear your own shoes. So if Nike SB picks up Lacey, that's a smart move. They're betting on the fact that she goes to Olympics, their shoe will be there. It's very smart. But I don't see enough change right now leading up to the Olympics where it's helping us propel all the girls forward with the contest. I mean, the do tour is starting. They're coming back. And somebody called me the other day and they said, do you know there's no women's event in the do tour? And I'm like, that's yeah. crazy. That's insane. I said, yeah, yeah I already I already saw that. And the sad thing is I woke up and saw it and I went, oh, yeah, that's normal. Like it made me angry, but it was just like, oh, yeah, this is another part of my day because I see this every day. I see it all the time. It feels like you've done so much for the sport. If you spoke to them as a company, is it they don't want to do it or is it almost an ignorance on their part of just not, oh, of course, we should be having... I think, competitions. I think what's happened is it's been this way for so long and it's male-dominated industry and it's run by males and they've done it this way for so long and I have spoken up and I have some really nice meetings with people that I respect and I know they listen to me but change is very slow to come and there's bits and pieces here and there but it's a lot slower going than I thought it would be and it's not necessarily met with resistance. It's more like we have to think about that. And I've been told that I'm like a couple of years ahead on everything that I want to do. <laughs> but that's where you want to be. You don't want to be the person who's jumping on the bandwagon two years behind. And I get that in my work as a stylist sometimes when I have a vision for a client to do a video or something. And I get that in skateboarding as well. Like when I came out with the first board, the girl's not a four letter word board. People are like, ah, people aren't ready for this, you know? Well, it sold out in 30 days. Everybody underestimated it and it was great. So here we are four years later, we're on board eight and we're still going and it's doing well. It's in skate shops all over the world and it's in Zoomies, which is a large retail chain of 650 stores. And we love that. And, you know, people in skateboarding are core and they're like, ah, oh, you know, it's in Zoomies, it's in the mall. And my thought is, hey, look, this is girls skateboard. A mom feels very intimidated a lot of times to go to a core skate shop and she may or may not get the help she needs there. But if she's walking through the mall with her daughter and she walks into Zoomies and sees that board, she feels very comfortable buying it and comfortable going into the store. And as long as that gets more girls skateboarding, I am 100% for that. That's why you created Girl is Not a Four-Letter Word. Can you talk a little bit about how that happened? Yeah, I had just launched the first board, and it was amazing how that came about. It was just like a meeting in my backyard with two people in the industry, or both male, and one of them said, hey, you should do a board, and the other one was creative director at this company. I said, oh, yeah, sure, and I thought... <laughs> That'll never happen. And it happened. And it was kind of, I think, as we all admit now, a bit of a vanity project on their part. And it was like, hey, look, we support girls skateboarding. But it's evolved into so much more. And I'm very happy for the respect that they have for the line. And I've stayed with them because of that. I've had numerous offers since to go to other companies. And I stay where I'm at because I think we're on a good road. And I think we have a vision and a plan. It's slower than I'd like it to go a lot of times. And I do get frustrated. But but I think to myself that we have the distribution, we have the idea, we have the meetings and the forward momentum. It's just maybe we need to pick up the pace a little bit right. from, for me. That's how I feel. Can you explain sort of the business model in a way? Because you created a board line with a pre-existing company and your board line is called Girl is Not a Four-Letter Word. And then you created a sort of a constellation of skaters, right? Who, yes. Who work with... Can you explain how that works? Yeah. Well, Girl is Not a Four-Letter Word started with the board. And then it kind of involved more into like, hey, we should have some team riders. Girls need sponsorship. They need some help. They need some visibility. Luckily, with where I am in the industry and my other career, I'm able to put those two together and get that visibility for them. And people will call and say, hey, do you have girls to skate in this ad or whatever? And I can put those things together. And I'm not an agent. And all I do is put the pieces together and connect the right people like a connector. 
and as we've gone on, it's grown from more than just this team of girls. That was for people to see. These girls are out there. You should be looking at them. And we keep their profiles updated and we post on the website every single day about different girls, not just our girls, all girls. In the last three years, it's really become a movement. And we still have a team per se that we support with products and financially and everything else. But it is really a bigger movement. We have a lot of girls who are involved with the movement and are part of it. And we always refer out. And I think that's really what it is. It's a movement to gain awareness for girls skateboarding Mm -hmm. and to try to make a difference. And you've recently written a book. Do you want to tell us about It's Not About Pretty, which (laughs) is the title of the book? Yeah, It's Not About Pretty just came out and it's a 144 page hardback book, all photography of girls skateboarding. And there are 65 girls featured in the book from pros to ams to street skating to bowls to to backyard ramps, really DIY situations, soul skaters, every type of skateboarding you can think of. Some of the girls will flip through the book and go, oh, I know her. She's a pro skater and I admire her. They'll look at another girl and be like, Ah, that girl's super cool. Where is she? I've never met her. It encompasses everything. We shot the book. Well, actually, we didn't. My husband, Ian Logan's a photographer, advertising photographer. And he took time off from when he wasn't shooting for clients to shoot pieces of this book for over six years. And we had like 40,000 images over that time. And a lot of them had never been seen. We put them on our website after every competition or every shoot. There's always something on the website and the girls can share them and use them. And we put them on social media. But I started thinking, why isn't there a book on girls skateboarding? There's never been one. In 35 years, there's not been a book on girls skateboarding. And there's only been a handful of girls on the cover of a skateboard magazine. And I thought, this is silly. And it took about four years to get Ian to come around and say, you know, maybe we should do this. He always had a reason, like he didn't have enough imagery. He wanted more, wanted more diversity. And about a year and a half ago, he was ready to do it. I caught him at a good time and we started working on it. And we have a designer named Elise Krieger, who's also a skater who lives in Florida, who worked with us remotely on the book. And this is somebody who at 25 years old came to me via Instagram and said, I love your mission. I love what you're doing. How can I help? I'm a designer by trade and I'm a skater and I'm here to help. Yeah. And the we universe start, provides, right? Yeah. It's and like amazing. I always tell girls, ask for what you want. Yeah. And she did exactly that. And she's like, whoa, that was so rad. And you answered. And now we're working together. And I'm like, yeah. And now you've done a book. You're 25. You've done a book. And you did an amazing job. We could not have done it without her. Mm-hmm. She pulled all the pieces together and, and made the layouts look spectacular without taking away from the photography. And now we have this book out there. And we've been very excited because not only has the skate industry embraced it and written about it but the mainstream fashion and beauty industry has written about it and said these girls are beautiful talented and should be supported so for me the big excitement was being in teen vogue and being on forbes those were the things that solidified that this is an important project and the skate industry embracing it is icing on the cake as well yeah how did your ted talk come about that was interesting somebody saw me on facebook and been watching me for a while and referred me to somebody who was putting on a ted talk in santa monica and i interviewed with them and ended up doing girl is not a four-letter word tedx talk Mm -hmm. for youth and that was a couple years ago and was an interesting experience, very interesting experience. Let's go back, if we could, to you, your earlier days when you were talking about how your grandmother supported your vision and, you know, let you sneak out of the house in jeans. From that point, what made you decide that this was the path that you would take? When I was skateboarding, I was never afraid to speak out or speak my mind. If you ask any of the pro skater boys that I grew up with, they laugh about that. <laughs> they say, yeah, don't mess with her. She hasn't come back for everything. So I, I had to. I had, and you're I, such a sweetheart. Like yeah. you're so, your energy is so sweet, but you're like, you have this tough, Fierce. like fierceness yeah. to you, which is so interesting. I do. I like to say that I'm super nice until you cross me and then, <laughs> then I'm a different person. But I think some people People go into their day with their armor on, right? I, I don't go into the day like that. I go into the day with like everything's cool. It's a good vibe. It's going to be a great time. And then if somebody crosses the line, then I'm going to say something or stand up for myself. And I hate having to go there, but I'm not going to shy away from it. I think even as a teenager... I was still that girl, and I know that there's boys in skateboarding that are grown men now that still talk about those days, and 
Sure. <laughs> the fear, wrath of Cindy. Fear, yeah, fear the wrath um, or the comeback because I was very quick on my feet with, you know, somebody would say something and then I'd throw out a derogatory remark right back and it could go volley back and forth quite a few times and I'd always have something. And I think that some of them just skirt the room when I'm in it now. But most of, <laughs> most of them are totally fine. And I have so many guys supporters from that era that now come forward and say, we're behind you. Anything you're doing with girls skateboarding, we're here to help. But speaking out, I think the first time was when I did the article and had the centerfold in the skateboarding magazine when I was 15, they asked me a lot of questions about why would a girl skate and, you know, all the things that people always asked me in public. And I was able to speak out and say, you know, girls are not the weaker sex. They can do anything they want. And so at 15 and a half, I was already speaking out. And I didn't know what was speaking out. I just was speaking my mind, what I thought and felt every day and why it should be this way. So I think I've always had that attitude. And when skateboarding kind of died out and I became a stylist, I did that for a while and wasn't that happy with the people I was dealing with and who I was interacting with during the day. A lot of times it was all about being a size, you know, zero or two and people weren't happy with their body. And I wasn't used to that. I wasn't used to being around people who weren't happy with who they were. How old were you then when this was, it was going on? Early 20s. So it was like 24, 25 when I started seriously doing styling and had an agent and whatnot. And around 28, my boyfriend at the time met a photographer who was doing just sports and that was unheard of. So I kind of switched my focus over and my agent dropped me, said, you know, there's no money in sports. You have to do oh celebrity. You have to do celebrity styling because Nike wasn't doing a yeah. ton of stuff. Things weren't big yet. And I was like, I feel so good when I go to work and these people are athletes and they get me and I get them. And we parted ways and I started repping myself and I created this niche where I was just super happy and I loved going to work and clients started hiring me because they knew I related to their athletes. Their athletes related to me. I didn't come in with drama. I came in with understanding that their body was not a sample size, especially the girls. And that was the key. Mm-hmm. It's like I was dressing the girls who won the World Cup of Soccer right after that win and Brandy Chastain and all those girls became very good friends of ours. And, you know, they would tell me, I have soccer thighs, but it said proudly. It's like, I have soccer thighs because I worked hard for these. So make sure those jeans aren't too skinny, you know, and an ice skater was Olympic ice skater. And she would say, now remember, I have ice skater, but these are all things that are said with pride because they've trained so hard. Whereas what I was hearing before was all about like, how thin can I get? So I was very happy to move into that situation. And then from there, I came back to skateboarding and decided that this was something I wanted to add into my career. Can I talk to you about like the the styling? You're married to a photographer. Did you guys meet through your your career? We met on a job in Cozumel, Mexico, and he was doing lighting for a well-known photographer. And we met on that shoot, and I really could not stand him. And he probably <laughs> thought that I was just a terror. And so, something happened during those seven days in Mexico and working together and, you know, eating every meal together like you do and whatnot. And when we got back here, we found out we had a lot in common. And uh, he liked to surf. He did not skateboard. But we had a lot of things in common. One thing led to another. And I was the kind of girl who was like, yeah, I date. I'm never going to get married. I don't need, I don't need that. <laughs> I have a lot of things I'm doing here. And I realized, wow, this guy's interesting. Like, it doesn't have to be that way, what I thought it would be. It can be any way you want it to be. And that's kind of how our relationship is. is a partnership on every level. He stands behind all things girls skateboarding. He works tirelessly towards that goal, the same goal I have. And a lot of people in skateboarding don't even know his history or background. We've been at events and I've been asked, you know, we have to vet him if he's going to take pictures. And I'm like, he shot the 2002 Olympics for the IOC. I think he's good. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's like he shot Lyle Lovett, Tommy Lee. I think we're okay. But he doesn't like to say that about himself. He's very, very low key. But he has been there every step of the way with girls, not a four letter word. And there's Mm -hmm. times when I was ready to walk away with frustration. And there's times when he would say to me, I don't, I don't, I think you're exaggerating. Maybe you went to this meeting and this happened. I I can't believe that people would see it that way. And then I drag him to a meeting with me and he'd walk, he'd come out and say to me and look at me when we got home and go, wow. I've never seen this before in our industry, you know, in advertising, 
pretty much people are pretty equal. Stylists are looked at as equal to the art director as far as like your voice and your vision. It's not because you're male or female. It's because you're good. And he had never experienced this kind of discrimination or put down of gender or the way they thought about a gender. Photography is very different. It's very um, equal rights and it has been for a long time. Yeah. Yeah, You think about all the great, you know, from, from Burke white all the way up to, um, Leibowitz. Yeah, I was know, just going to say really Leibowitz. power women. Yeah, yeah, or how about when Helmut Newton died and and they had his wife take over that photo shoot yeah. because you know, he passed away and there they are in LA in the middle of this photo shoot and it's like it was never like oh let's get a guy, let's go get Peter Lindbergh for that or something. <laughs> yeah. It was like no, she's here, she's amazing. Yeah. Uh, let's do this. Just finish so it. that's the world I've been living in since I was my 20s. So I kind of forgot like skateboarding, how that really goes sometimes. And for him to see it firsthand has kind of been an eye opener. Yeah. Does he skateboard now? No, I don't let him skateboard. <laughs> Makes me nervous. <laughs> but he surfs. <laughs> he surfs. Yeah. Do, do you surf? <laughs> I surf a little bit. I haven't in quite a long time. Um, I had some problems with my right elbow from all those fractures and it was really hard to push up off the board and I just got out of practice with it. So I just stick with skateboarding. Yeah. I love what you said when no one was doing the styling. You said, I liked how I felt when I went to work. So you didn't do it for the money like everyone else. You did your own passing. This is what's going to make me happy. And I loved what you were saying just about relationships. I'm busy. I got my own things going. I'm not sitting around waiting for a guy. It's yeah. very empowering. Like I, when I think what would I tell my, you know, 18 year old niece, those are two things. Do it for what you love and what feels great and have your own life. And yeah, I think there's always compromises in every relationship or business or anything else. But I think you have to sit down like my mom used to tell me because I used to be like, ah, that's not going to work out with that guy or whatever. And I don't want to have an excuse. And she'd say, you better start making a list of the things you don't like and the things you really can't tolerate because this list of what you don't like is getting pretty long. It's not going to be anybody left in L.A. pretty soon or the world. So I kind of learned that, you know, the, the short list is what matters and your principles matter. And having things in common that you believe in to the core is important. And I really will say that without him behind me, I couldn't have done as much as I've done. I would have still done what I'm doing, but I couldn't have done as much as fast and keep doing it because on the hard days he is the one that really understands what wow. I'm going through. Yeah, are your parents still alive? My mom is, my father is not, but mm. my parents have been divorced since I was very young. But my dad's always been in my life, and um, I think my dad would be proud if he was here. He'd still be saying to me, "When are you going to get a real job?" Styling to him <laughs> was not a real job. My whole family is doctors and attorneys, so I'm the black sheep out of five but kids. But you're, yeah, the, you're, you're such a black sheep. You're a, <laughs> You're black sheep, but you are a true member of the creative class. I like know? that phrase, yeah. the creative class. I hadn't thought yeah, of that you, one. I like it. You totally are. <laughs> so, And you're also somewhat of a criminal. Will you tell us about Carmageddon 2012? Well, the first Carmageddon, they closed down the 405 freeway to blast out a bridge and, and start the process of rebuilding. And I saw this photo on the news of these crazy people who put a table on the freeway and pretended they were having a dinner party and shot photos of it. I'm like, these people are cool. I don't think if they ever do this again, I'm getting on that freeway. And so I think it was about a year later, they started the process of Carmageddon 2 and we knew it was coming for a very long time. And I told my husband, wouldn't it be cool to skateboard down the freeway? And he's like, yeah, if you want to do it, let's do it. And he's, he's all for, you know, anything I want to do like that. So I started asking friends of mine, male and female, hey, you want to skateboard down the freeway? It'd look cool with like three or four of us coming down the freeway. Ah, no, I can't get afford to get arrested. I don't want to get thrown in jail. I got a job to worry about. That just seems risky. I heard it all. And I was on a photo shoot back east and I got very sick and I was in the hospital and I came home from that and I was very drained and the next day was Carmageddon and my husband said to me okay look I know you don't feel well but here's the thing this is only going to happen once you can either rally at five o'clock tomorrow morning get in the car or you can not and you'll probably regret it and I had zero energy but I was like I've got to do this so we got in the car I think about 4.45 he had scoped out the freeway the day before like a true location scout you know he would look for every <laughs> every entrance and exit and they've gotten smart I want to meet him yeah, oh yeah great. he's good oh yeah he's, we got to get him on the show next <laughs> <laughs> he um he looked and he's like ah they built like fencing up and down the freeway and they're on the news saying they're going to put a police at every entrance and exit so I don't know how we're going to get in 
And then, of course, we had the mayor on the news saying anybody who's on the freeway is going to be arrested. No questions asked. We're not going to just ask you to leave and slap you on the hand. You are going to be arrested. So it was to discourage people. And then the chief of police was on there saying the same thing. And actually, that just fueled me. That was just like, oh, I got to do this. I got to get away with this. Now you were really rallied, right? Yeah. And my sister's a criminal attorney. So I called her and, you know, had a little advice session. And she was like, oh, my God, really? And she advised me to write a bail bondsman's number on my arm and write three people's phone numbers on my other arm because she said, don't keep scraps of paper in your pocket with people's numbers because, you know, nobody remembers phone numbers anymore because it's all in our cell phone. She's like, they're going to take your cell phone. They're going to take everything out of your pockets immediately. Write it on your arms because you're not going to know who to call. And I'm like, well, I'm going to call you, of course. You're going to come get right. me. And uh, so I did all that. And we went out looking for a spot to get into the 405. And we drove around. I talked to policemen and we got it on camera, like just asking questions. Hey, anybody playing on the freeway? No. Are you kidding? We're going to arrest them. And we, <laughs> we we went all the way up by Mulholland Pass and, you know, went through a few people's backyards. They said hi. They knew what we were doing. They were like, hey. Um, and we climbed <laughs> over some fences and we got all the way to the barricades. And literally, I was getting ready to get on the freeway and a motorcycle policeman zoomed down the freeway past the barricade and we hid behind it. So there was a couple counters like that. And I was posting on Facebook because I have no fear about getting caught. So I was posting on Facebook, you know what I'm doing this morning and people kind of knew. And then I was like, I don't think this is going to happen. And I was updating pretty constantly. And as we were driving home, somebody had torn a hole in that metal chain link fencing by the freeway, by the Getty Center Drive. And Ian was like, if you want to do this, this is your chance. This is like now go through that hole, go up, I'll go down. We got to get this. So we did. And I ran up and my heart was racing. It was crazy. And a police car went right by us. I was like, oh, no, we're busted. We got on the freeway and I see these dump trucks coming up the other side. And I was like, they're going to tell somebody. So I crouched down and I start skating and I see him down there. And I got kind of into the ride and I almost missed. There was an exit, which I knew I couldn't get off of because there was a policeman at the other end. But I knew I had to stop right before that to run back to where he, where Ian was to get back to the car. So I luckily made it and we did it. We got in the car. I threw off my sweatshirt. I had a tank top underneath. I threw off my tennis shoes and put on flip flops. I put on a baseball hat, threw everything in the like back end of the Range Rover and pulled the cover over it so you couldn't see it. I thought if we get pulled over and be like, I don't match that description. Nobody in this car matches that description that you just gave because that person had a bright blue sweatshirt on with so a happy criminal like. Yeah. Well, I, just, I had to think it through. Yeah. <laughs> My sister's a criminal attorney. So I got to think right. You know, so that sweatshirt had like a happy face on it. It was like I was just mocking everything. So we got done and he wouldn't even let me look at the camera until we got to a gas station a ways away. He was like, no, no. And so we got to a gas station. I looked. I'm like, oh, my God, you got it. This is awesome. <sighs> and I went home and I posted on Instagram with the hashtag Carmageddon. Carmageddon, too. And immediately the Huffington Post called. And then from there, just, you know, all hell broke loose. It yeah. was it went viral and it was very interesting. Did you get arrested? No, because I called my sister who did not answer the phone because she was still sleeping at 11 a.m. And <laughs> I was like, well, that would have done me a lot of good if I'd been in jail. And her comment was, just like I tell all my clients, you're not going anywhere. I'll get to you when I get to you. And I thought, wow, that's special. <laughs> so like you're in jail. You're not going anywhere. I'll get you when I get to you. Anywhere. So they can't arrest you after the fact. They no, have to, they have to arrest was, you while you're doing it. Yeah, that's what I was mm. told by my sister and also another attorney who lives in my neighborhood who I then put on like a retainer to be with me that day in case there were any problems because the news channel showed up at my house and we were doing news interviews. And my mom was living next door at the time. And she was calling and saying, why are these news channels at our house here? Why are they parked out front? And the neighborhood was asking. What did and, my daughter do today? Yeah. And I, I said, well, there's something we need to tell you. And we showed her the picture. And she got really quiet. And she said, you know, your father's dead. He is not here to bail you out of this one. And that Ooh. was her biggest concern. <laughs> and I said, no, no, we're not going to get arrested. It's fine. She was not happy about it. But, you know, she just, she's very genteel. She just kept her mouth quiet and she's just giving me that disapproving look that she gives. And that was that. And the next morning I happened to be at her house to check in on her and just go over the day's events. And she had on Kelly and Michael yep. on TV. And I, and she looks over and she goes, oh, look, honey, there's Ian's 
photograph on Kelly and Michael. And Michael's holding up the photo of me skating down the freeway. And Kelly's talking about, yeah, and this person did this. And my mom goes, oh, I have to tell all my friends that Ian's <laughs> photograph is on Kelly and Michael. And you're like, what? She's not going to tell them it's her daughter on the photograph, but Ian's photo, because she's very proud of him. She loves him to death. That is and so funny. And she's like, Ian's photo's on. So oh. then once Kelly said it, it was all okay. It's all good. Wow. The guys, what did they think? They loved it. Everybody in skateboarding was super positive. They were great about it. It was really people on the internet that, you know, were anonymous people I didn't know, people I'll never meet in my life, hopefully, that, you know, were over there saying nasty things like you should be arrested and you know, you're a stupid woman and what kind of example did you set? And there were a lot of things said and some of them were so, so nasty that I shut the computer and I said, we're not reading this anymore. Ian actually said, we're not reading this anymore. He was getting really angry. And we haven't gone back and read comments on those posts on any of the channels or having to post or anything to this day because we thought it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. You're not our core group of friends and you're not people we have any relationship with. So we yeah. don't really care. That always goes to my one of my favorite expressions. Opinions are like assholes. Everyone has one. Yeah. <laughs> or everybody has an opinion. Like, why do you have an opinion about what I'm doing? Yeah, definitely. Like, do what you want to do as long as you're not hurting anybody else. Yeah, you're just um, living a wonderful moment. Yeah. How much fun must that have been too, right? It was super fun. And it was a lot smoother than I thought. It was, I had like decked out my board the night before. I had all my boards out and trucks and wheels. And I had configured a board that I wanted to put together for certain reasons. How far did you go? Not that far. Just from Getty Center Drive to almost the next exit. So it's like a quarter of a mile maybe Yeah, it's probably a quarter mile. Yeah, it's not that far, but it was super fun. And it was like, I don't remember a lot of the ride because I was so like, energized and just watching for police and wondering what was going to happen next. But I'm super glad I did it. It was like a bucket list thing without being on the bucket list for very long. But I did it and I I have no regrets about that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you have had some life. Yeah. Unbelievable. (laughs) I guess your brother probably isn't trying to compete with you anymore, right? (laughs) (laughs) No, not so much on that front. No. Well, Congratulations on being a pioneer and leading the charge in something really important for setting great examples for equality and young women and being athletes. And And congratulations on your book, too. It's not about pretty. I mean, I think that um, it's a a major accomplishment as well, because it's going to just spread the word and validate the, you know, the the sport for girls. So you're a pioneer in so many things. Girls is not a four letter word. You really, I, I'm so proud and pleased to have met you. Thank it's you. It's just been a great time. Thank you so much Thank for coming. Thank you very Thanks much. Thank you for really. having me. It's been wonderful. He's a musician, composer, songwriter, and record producer who's worked with some of the biggest selling music performers in the world. Whitney Houston, Jennifer Lopez, Michael Jackson, Madonna, Celine Dion, and Barbara Streisand, just to name a few. He's a musical genius who's produced some of the biggest selling multi-platinum records of all time. So get ready as 16-time Grammy Award winner and music industry legend David Foster steps up to the mic. We'll discover how he became one of the most prolific creative collaborators and highest achievers the music business has ever known when he shares with us what it takes to unlock your inner talent. So join us as we rewind to the beginning with David Foster on the next Say It Forward. Thanks for listening to Say It Forward. Help us grow by subscribing to our podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or at www.sayitforwardpodcast.com. Don't forget to rate and review us on the iTunes store or like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram.